Hi, and welcome to How to Second Gen, a series of conversations with people who grew up in a different country than their parents. On this podcast, we explore questions of belonging, culture clash, and confused identities. I'm your host, Mark Hugh. My guest on this episode is Felipe Hakame, a photojournalist whose work focuses on human mobility and human rights. His work has appeared in publications including National Geographic, The Washington Post, Vice, and CNN. We discussed how his immigrant experience differed from that of his siblings, race and class in Ecuador, and how photography gives him an excuse to hang out in unusual places, such as the countryside of Haiti and jungles of Venezuela. My name is Felipe. I was born and raised in Ecuador. I moved to the U.S. when I was about 14. Um, We came over with my family as a result of a big uh, economic collapse back home. Um, And due to economic pressures and also political pressures, we were kind of forced to leave the country. Um, I think we were quite lucky to when we came to the US. My father is uh, an economist, so he um, managed to land a job and uh, and a visa to uh, to allow us uh, all to stay. Um, and uh, I guess we've never really left. We never really went back for the most part. Um, for myself, I am uh, I am a photographer. I've worked as a humanitarian worker and I do consulting uh, for international development organizations to um, put food on the table. Great. Thank you, man. Uh, Why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about your parents? My dad and my mother, they are the sons and daughters of military people. Uh, Both of my grandparents were in the military. Um, They were both, um, they were both, uh, people that were kind of outcasts within their family and joined the military as a way to kind of leave their families and be on their own at very early age in their early teens. And so my grandparents knew each other all their lives and therefore my parents know each other all their lives. I guess it's important to mention that both of my grandparents come from this military background and that my parents grew up in these military households because in Latin America, that has a big connotation, right? Latin America till very recently uh, was in and out of dictatorships, was in and out of of these right-wing military regimes from most of the continent uh, uh, with very very few exceptions, right? Um, And so both my father and my grandmother grew up in these very right-wing households. It's been interesting to see my grandparents being these like military people, right wing, really believers in the armed forces of the stabilizing force within the country and the region. And then what my parents have become, my grandfather, as he was a general in the armed forces and he came to be at odds with the president and he was exiled. He was imprisoned and then he was exiled. And so my grandparents and my father ended up in Spain and my father did his university in Spain in the 70s, at the beginning of the 70s, right when Franco's dictatorship was ending. Um, I think he died in 73, if I'm not, 75 maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't remember right now, but my father was there through that entire period and there, when Franco dies, you know, everything changed, democracy comes in, 
and and people were quite active. So um, even though both my my mom and my and my dad come from these right wing families, they are much more left leaning. They're much more they they come from that movement, Latin American movement towards democracy. Um, so and that's really um, a contrast within the family. Hmm. That's fascinating, man. So what did they do? Um, you mentioned your father's an economist. Um, what were they doing in Ecuador? And then you mentioned having to leave. Like, why did you guys have to leave or decide to leave for the U.S.? I guess my father has always been, he, he's, he's an academic, he's an economist, and he's always been reasonably left-wing, but not quite involved in, you know, the far left or the guerrilla movements or the, you know, the, the, the rebels in Latin America. He was never part of that. He was, uh, he was always kind of center-left, which was already quite extreme for, for my grandparents. So just participating in center-left political parties um, and being, you know, in that debate over there. I guess the the story of of why we left Ecuador is essentially my father, as an economist, uh, he's always been focused on central banks and monetary policy. And so he ended up being the president of the central bank in Ecuador uh, in 1997. And then in 1999, this huge crisis hit. And when his decisions were at odds with the president, um, then, then we were forced to leave the country. Uh, a few months after we left the country, the president fell. Um, he was uh, indicted for corruption, and there was a massive economic crisis as well. So, so yeah, I guess the president also ended up leaving. That sounds wild, man. Um, how was it? I imagine it was difficult for your whole family, but how was it for you? You mentioned you were like 14 or so at the time when you know all of this was going on. Of course, it was tough to when that was going on in Ecuador. It was certainly really tough coming to the U.S. I think when you're 14 or 15, you just care about, you know, hanging out with your buddies and you don't care about, you know, much else. So the fact that my parents said, you know, pack up your shit, we have to go. That was quite, that was quite, that was quite a shock. Um, I think I came to the U.S. with quite a negative predisposition and not necessarily finding all the, the, the positive aspects, but really just, you know, focusing on the negative aspects of society here and, and high school here. I think that moving to the U.S. for a teenager coming from Latin America is definitely a step down in terms of quality of fun. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you're a teenager in a place like Ecuador, when you're 14, 15, you're basically a grown-up going to parties, you know, to quinceañeras, and you're dancing and you're drinking, you're getting drunk. Um, girls over there tend to be a bit more conservative, so you're definitely not getting any love. But you're getting in fights with your, you know, and, and you're getting in fights and, and you're having fun with your friends. And so I guess, you know, coming to the U.S. and all of a sudden, hey, you know, you can't drink, you can't, you know, you can't buy a pack of cigarettes. Uh, uh, and there's really nothing to do for the next, uh, you know, seven years. And that's definitely tough for, for a teenager to face. How would you describe then your your childhood in Ecuador? It sounds like by the time you were you you moved to the U.S., it was pretty fun. Um, but when you look back now on your childhood, what comes to mind? Um, my, my childhood in Ecuador, I think, was, was, was quite a lot of fun. Um, definitely a lot of family, a lot of cousins. Um, it was also very, I think, my biggest shock when I came to the U.S. was the fact that we moved to suburbia maryland 
and we arrived in this you know very nice house and i looked out the window and there was nobody outside mm. um i grew up in kind of like a very middle class neighborhood in 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 quito the capital of ecuador and if you would open the window you would see people playing in like this little park and you know i would come home from school you know eat whatever do my homework and then i would look out the window and my friends would be there like all the kids from the neighborhood and i would just run outside and play with them until it got dark it wasn't very dangerous we would of course have to be careful but it wasn't very dangerous and there was a sense of trust in a great number of societies that are less individualistic than the US there is a sense of trust a sense of community uh, between people between neighbors between in your neighborhood i came to the US and i i never met my neighbors mm. you know i knew who they were because you know you see them walking in and out but but you never hung out with them right in in ecuador if if something happened to you know one of my siblings uh, my mom could like knock on the neighbor's door and say hey can you watch my kids for for the afternoon i have to go that that's perfectly normal you're not mm-hmm. afraid of the other person and that was the biggest shock for me when i came to the us i looked out the window and there was nobody i'm curious man like based on our friendship i think we've talked about this but my parents were dirt poor did well for themselves but you know are not like prominent people and i remember when i found out you mentioned a long time after we met that your dad used to run the national bank of ecuador I was like hot diggity what's that like like having never been to ecuador but having spent time in other latin american states i imagine that it is a place with fewer people who are educated and an elite class a lot of poor people and so i always imagined felipe that you're in this like high class privileged world in ecuador you know with butlers and shit <laughs> and your dad is off deciding Ecuador's monetary policy and then you move to the suburbs of America and you go from being like Felipe son of so and so to just some regular kid was it at all like that or was, is that just a figment of my imagination it is very much a figment of your imagination <laughs> ecuador has historically been a very poor country uh very with a lot of inequality certainly uh with a very small but rich land base elite of which my family was never a part of as i mentioned both of my grandparents were basically either either orphans or kind of bastard children and ended up you know joining the military in their teens to 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 basically have a roof over their heads mm. um and then in the 70s when oil is discovered in ecuador that kind of resulted in a growing economy and uh, and then an increase in education and in opportunities for a good number of for a good part of the population really creating this kind of middle class i think that in ecuador ecuador because it's always been quite a poor country if you're wealthy you are certainly less wealthy than people in than wealthy people in Mexico right or wealthy people in Brazil i mean wealthy the wealthiest of brazil are incredibly rich or the wealthiest of mexico are incredibly wealthy mm. in ecuador you can be well off which doesn't really mean that much i grew up surrounded like living in a middle class neighborhood some of my school friends were rather wealthy some were not as wealthy and then all my neighborhood friends because we were in this very middle class neighborhood they were very much you know 
middle class and those are like my friends that I still keep in touch and they're you know just people who are you know making it the day-to-day struggling to make it trying to make a career and if mm-hmm. they you know and if, if they've gotten anywhere anywhere is kind of as a result of their own efforts before the central bank my father was a professor and a consultant mm. um, so yeah unless you own a bank or you own land or you own a big company you're not necessarily you know very that sort well of like famous. landed elite or whatever landed or 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 these big companies right right or like i think in fact you know moving to the u.s and i moved to the u.s to montgomery county maryland where in my high school there were extremely wealthy people i mean with really fancy last names and you know hiltons and marriott's and, and whatnot so mm. and 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 kids driving you know very expensive cars and stuff like that so uh even though it was a public high school what was certainly uh interesting for me and i think this is really what formed me as a person is the fact that in the u.s as a teenager you can work mm. So I, I had my first job at 15, and I've been working since, right? Mm. Everything that I have that's mine is because I, you know, I've, I've, I've worked. I worked through college. Um, so I think, and I think that's quite a different experience than most of the kids in Ecuador that unless you really need to work, mm. you're not going to work because mm. there are very few jobs. Um, Did your parents so, push you to work, or was that something that you wanted to do yourself? Um, I think it was my older brother's example. Um, he came here at 18, uh, right into university, to University of Maryland. And I think he's always been kind of a hardworking dude. And, and you know, my parents said, like, look, we're, uh, we're, we're going to help you with, uh, with, uh, with school, but if you... If you want something, need something, you know, if you want your own money, you can you can earn it here. You can work. And so he was he's always been extremely hardworking. Um, and so, I mean, even till a few years back, uh, my brother working for an international organization, wearing a suit and a tie, you know, when Super Bowl Sunday came around, he would pick up his Domino's pizza jacket and go out to deliver pizzas. Wow. Wow. A few years back, and you know, he was working, you know, a pretty, de- a pretty good job. So, wow. so I think it was. I think it's, it's that. I think it's, and I think it's, it's, it's really cool that in the U.S. as a teenager you can work. So I've done all kinds of jobs, and what are some of the jobs? Oh, I think my first, uh, my first job was kind of like a Spanish tutor, or whatever babysitter. But I've done from that to I've worked a at Starbucks, I've worked as a waiter, I've worked in catering, I've worked in construction, I've worked as a translator, I've worked as a survey enumerator. Um, what is that? Like like going doing surveys on the street. Oh, right. Um, wow. So I've, yeah, I've, um, weddings, I mean, you name it, you name it, I've done it. Like catering at weddings or singing or what? <laughs> No, that part of the event organizing carry. Uh, right on. That's cool. So that's cool. That's cool. Like, you know, the fact that you can work in the U.S. is pretty cool. And I think it, it's definitely quite, um, it's, it's, it, it, it really formed me as who I am. Because I think most of the friends that I had um, 
growing up until they were in university they didn't really work and some of them that had you know if they have more money or their families have a company or something they've never really they never really worked until they were you know in an office and they were probably making you know they're probably in a, in a decent position for who they were um versus but, starting kind of at the bottom starting from the bottom yeah and i ultimately think that that is the one of the greatest virtues of american society and that really is the american dream and if you work you can start from the bottom you can work in the bottom and still make it what's it like being ecuadorian in america man like to be honest you're the you're the first ecuadorian i've i ever met and i've only met a few since then thankfully um how do people react? Are there any stereotypes that come with that versus they being, I don't know, Mexican or Spanish or something else? I mean, Ecuador is a non-place. Nobody really knows about it. So it's not like there is any stereotypes associated with it. You say, oh, I'm from Ecuador. They're like, okay. Um, <laughs> particularly in the U.S., there are, you know, there are stereotypes around certain countries, but not, but not others, right? And when you come from abroad, you, you feel and you find that you know, the U.S., because it's so, you know, American-centric, then that, that, that people tend to be quite ignorant about the rest of the world. So I don't carry any stereotypes with me because of that. I think I, I didn't like having an accent when I got here, and I did everything in my power to get rid of it. Um, I don't know if I fully succeeded, but, you know, unless you listen quite carefully, I don't think you can hear that much of an accent. No. Um, and then, uh, as we were discussing the other day, you know, I have green eyes and kind of like light brown hair. So, you know, unless you look really carefully, I'm just, you know, your average white man walking in the street. Um, so I haven't really carried that, you know, any any stereotypes for being from Ecuador. Yeah, you touched on, on race, um, that you're sort of white passing. What's that like versus Ecuador? Like... In Ecuador, is there a concept like that, like of being white in Ecuador? And, and then when you came here, was figuring out your race a thing? Mm, well, Ecuador is an extremely classist and racist place, right? I would say, you know, a solid fifth of the population is, is indigenous or has a very strong indigenous background, a very recent indigenous background. Um, everybody is um, mixed or mestizo, whatever you want to call it. And there's some people that just say, you know, that believe, think, act as if they are white. Mm. And I have aunts and uncles and I know a ton of people that they think that they are direct descendants from the, you know, the, you know from the king of Spain. And socially, it's much better to be whiter looking or blonder looking or have light eyes, right? Mm. Uh, it's very much the remnants of, of colonization through and through. Now, for me, I guess, living in Ecuador and spending a lot of time there, I, I'm clearly, like, people, still, people look at me like a foreigner. I mean, they, they know that I can just be, you know, a, a paler Ecuadorian, but they kind of look at me as a foreigner. Hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that my older brother does not look particularly quote unquote white he looks very much you know latino hmm. or in ecuador he looks just like average 
uses a bit shorter, dark hair, dark eyes, you know, kind of a bit darker skin. And funny enough, when him and his friends, and then I think in high school, they, they weren't from a particularly wealthy crowd or, or background or anything like that, but, but they assumed that, that they were part of this, you know, educated elite. And then my brother came to the U.S. And I think I've never really spoken to him uh, about this. I think for him was quite a shock from him thinking of himself as part of the elite to just being Hispanic or Latino here and being treated and being looked at as such. Mm. Whether it's, uh, you know, an immigration at an airport or, you know, at a store or in school, having a thicker accent. I think it, it hit him quite strongly. In a way that it hasn't for you? Um, in a way that it, has, that it hadn't for me because of the way that I look. Race in the U.S. is not genotype, it's phenotype, right? Mm. It's how you look. Yeah, so, it's interesting so, that your brother, even though it's, you, you're not that, that many years apart, but um, 18 and 14 are different. And then just by, by way of having you know, different physical appearances, it sounds like it had an impact on you, you guys' experience of America. Yes, and it's also the, the age that you come in, right? Um, my brother came at 18, I came at 14, my sister came at 8. My little sister is completely American, completely mm. American. She only hangs out with American people. Huh. She is not necessarily comfortable back in Ecuador. Uh, she's always a bit afraid. I think it's, I think it's, uh, that's really quite. Um, Do you guys give her a hard time be. about it or about being too American or? Um... Reasonably. She definitely doesn't understand our sense of humor. We probably don't really understand hers. That's fine. But no, she, she makes a huge effort and she speaks impeccable Spanish for coming, for having come here at, at eight. You know, when, when, when we came to the, to the U.S., I think she started speaking to us in English and that never really flew. You know, we were under strict orders never to speak to her in English. So, but because, yeah, you, interest- because your parents wanted her to make sure that she gets her Spanish right? Correct, correct. I see. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, you know, you're speaking, about, you're speaking about race and, you know, what's your, what's, uh, your, your phenotype, your genotype, what are the perceptions of, of race? A year or two ago, we did this whole 23andMe, uh, all of my siblings, and we are across the board a third indigenous. Mm. Mm, I mean, it's, it's cool. It's curious. I don't think you would see my sister or me or my brother and particularly think that. But hell, you know, it doesn't make any difference either. How often would you go back to Ecuador after you guys moved to America? And what was that like? Do you ever have a point where you were like, ah, I'm back home. And then over time, it changed where now America's home, you know? Um, I don't think that we've ever said, oh, we're Americans, ever. Uh, first of all, I don't have an American nationality. I don't have an American passport. I am a permanent resident, um, but I don't have the citizenship um, here in the U.S. Neither does my brother. Um, so it's never been, you know, I don't think, I don't think uh, the, my sister probably thinks she's American or feels American, but none of us. No, no we, we, we don't. We would go back every year to Ecuador or every two years. And I guess back then it was very much like, oh, yeah, I'm home. Uh, it's good to be back home. Um, as the years have gone by, I still go several times a year for my work, for my you know, own, own personal interest, my activism, my 
my photography for a ton of reasons. I, I go back a lot to Ecuador and I feel reasonably Ecuadorian, but not a hundred percent either. Mm. Um, definitely not a hundred percent either, so, which is good and bad. Again, you know, I've been out coming in and out, but not really living there. I don't know that many people. Nobody really knows me. Nobody, mm. you know, if I, if I get all the, um, all the good things when I go back, meaning, you know, the, the culture, the landscape, the yeah, every, all, all the things that are that are interesting, I, I I have access to, but I don't get. You know, my, all my friends who live there and who have been there all their lives, they say, oh, you know, this place is so small. Everybody knows you. Everybody knows your business. This and that over there, very few people know me. Nobody really knows my business, so I don't I don't really have that issue. Where do you feel at home, or where do you feel you like this? This is my my place. These are my people. This is where I belong. Um, it could be multiple places. It could be nowhere. To be honest, man, I think I think there the an accurate description of, of of people like us is you know third culture more than second generation. It really is third culture. Mm. It's not. It's neither one nor the other. You're not Malaysian, one hundred percent. You're not Chinese, one hundred percent. You're not Australian, one hundred percent. You're not American, mm. brother. So so in your case, it's probably something like fourth culture, but. Um, but for me, it's it's uh, it's it's very much. Um, I I don't believe I fit in a hundred percent. I don't think I necessarily have a home other than where I hang my hat. Does that bother you at all? Are you cool with it? Have you always been cool with it? Yeah, I think I've always been cool with it. Um, I don't necessarily. I, I guess in high school, I never really tried to be a part of the american cliques i don't think they were particularly nice and yeah culturally i've never really felt at home in the u.s you know as an amateur anthropologist i would say that one of the defining features in the u.s is that americans are terrified of awkwardness mm. a feeling like the awkward, awkward. silence of the awkward silence or the awkward situation. Awkward does not translate as a word to most Latin languages, at least. Hmm. I don't know about Chinese. I don't know about, you know, but yeah. you, know, you, can say, you can say uncomfortable. You can say situation is uncomfortable, but you can't say a person is uncomfortable. Hmm. Hmm. You know? And that yeah. was very that's that's been very much my experience in high school and university. You know, if in in the U.S. people don't know how to relate to each other because they're always they have this fear of awkwardness. Will he remember my name? Do I remember his name? Is it going to be awkward? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to react. Whereas, I mean, in most of in the in, in a lot of the places where I spend my time, you know, and uh, in the jungles of Ecuador or you know in the refugee camps of eastern lebanon there there is no such fear of awkwardness people just take the moment as it comes and mm. that's it you become a humanitarian worker you um, become a photojournalist like why how do you think immigration and and living in different countries led you down this career path well i think i've always been interested in immigration because i was an immigrant myself. So I've always, uh, from a humanitarian worker standpoint to, yeah, as a humanitarian worker, as, uh, you know, as a consultant, as a photographer, I'm constantly 
exploring issues of uh, migration. And that's pretty much based on my own experience as an immigrant. It's definitely linked to that. You explore in a pretty intense way as far as being an artist goes. You are riding on the beast, the train that people hop onto to, to get to America from Central America. It's extremely dangerous. You are walking with refugees. Can you maybe talk about, a little bit about some of that experiential, like immersive photojournalism and, and like why you choose to work in that way? I, I think during university, I realized that I could spend an entire year in the library reading the, all the literature about a certain topic, about a certain place. And then you get to that place And in a few hours or in a day, you will learn more than what you learned for an entire year in the library reading about that place. And then photography, at least for me, came a little bit from left field. I never expected to be a photographer. I, didn't, I had never really picked up a camera until university. Photography gives you an excuse, allows you to be in places where you would otherwise not be, hmm. you know? If I show up to a neighborhood in El Salvador and try to hang out with the MS-13 or any of these gangs, they'll be like, hey, white boy, what in the world are you doing here? And you have five seconds before you are mm. skewered. Mm. Whereas if you show up as a photographer and you're doing journalism and you're, and you're telling a story, it allows you to be there. Hmm. So that was the reason, huh? It wasn't that you just loved the art uh, of uh, taking photos of, um, you know, photography. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 linked to it's linked to 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 being able to to be in places, to travel, to to uh, to places, and live certain moments and live certain experiences with other people that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and I think what's, I think ideally, I, I, I think I, if, if, if I would hadn't moved to the U.S., I would probably be a writer. I always loved writing as a kid. Mm. Um, I think then, you know, I started learning English, writing in English, and then my Spanish got all messed up. And then I, I, I probably don't write very well in English or in Spanish. And, um, and so I, I didn't end up uh as a writer but really what i love also about photography which writers don't do is that you can only take a good photo if you're close enough if your if your photos if if you, if your photos are not good enough you're not close enough hmm. physically mentally emotionally um energetically um and so yeah i mean ultimately you find tremendous amounts of humanity um in places where you thought you wouldn't and you find that people are very similar to you um in places that you that are you know completely different than what you're used to so that's the story and 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 to get those photos and to get a photo you have to be there you can't write it from your room writers spend a lot of time by them by 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 themselves they they spend a lot of time you know between four walls As a photographer, you have to drag yourself out of bed at five in the morning every day if you want to catch the good light. Mm. I'm wondering if any stories come to mind for you that speak to that, that moments, those moments that it sounds like you really um, 
crave, maybe live for, um, where you're there and it's intimate and it's close. And it sounds like, Felipe, you're not somebody who's most psyched about taking the perfect landscape shot. For you, photography is about humans and about about connecting with them. I mean, those moments have there. There's been there's been hundreds of, of of moments that I've literally just stopped in my tracks and said, "This is absolutely beautiful and and crazy and and tough and heartbreaking." Uh, but it's it's and sometimes it's raw, but it's it's you feel alive. Mm. You feel very much alive. Um, you were mentioning the train, La Bestia, crossing Mexico, sleeping on that train or watching the sunset or turn into a night full of stars and this train just kind of like moving slowly um, as it bisects Mexico and all these people just holding on to their, to, to, to their few belongings and their lives, not really knowing what's going to wait for them, you know, in a few hours or what's going to happen the next day. It's, it's brutal. It's very beautiful. Mm. There's a specific kind of story and connection that I would say that your work is about. It's often focusing on marginalized and underprivileged communities, be they in Haiti or Lebanon or Central South America. You work in international development. Why have you always been so interested in those less fortunate than you or I? That's a good question. I don't necessarily think I have a a great answer. I think I look for stories, and I guess I find and there there's a lot of stories to tell in those places a bit on the fringes of society where things are mm, less predictable. Yeah, definitely, definitely more fragile. More, it's it's similar to to a lot of the things that my parents believe in, but but I I definitely have taken a different route of of trying to understand, feel, and relate to others and to reality on the ground that maybe most people wouldn't get out of their comfort zone to do it. Why do I point my lens towards these very difficult stories? Uh, I don't know. Other than you know this. The sense of justice and the need to tell these stories of people that are not necessarily that don't necessarily have um, the same voice or the, their voices don't have the same reach. If people are interested, where can they find out more about your art? The easiest way is on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram username is Felipe Hakome Photo. That's F E L I P E. Last name Hakome J A C O M E Photo P H O T O. Okay, so that was my discussion with Felipe. I learned quite a bit from our conversation. At a personal level, I learned how wrong I was to assume that he lived some super-privileged life in Ecuador before moving to the States. I found his relationship with the U.S., starting in high school, remained more conflicted than mine, to the point where at this stage I probably consider myself more proudly American than he does. Perhaps this is related to the U.S.'s relationship with Latin America, which I imagine is much darker than it is with Australia. I'd love to know if there was anything that stood out to you, and if so, please leave a review or comment. And as always, if you liked this episode, please consider recommending it to a friend. For more information about the show, please visit markq3.wixsite.com slash howtosecondgen, and thanks a lot for listening.